Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's just not finished. Today, I'm talking with my good friend, Heather Redmond, the venture capitalist. After a successful career as a lawyer, Heather slowed down somewhat, played more tennis, and began thinking she was a bit over the hill. Until one day, her teenage daughter asked her what all the other moms really do, and she realized she wasn't done yet. She came back to work stronger, with more purpose, and with a goal to build her community in Seattle and to garner more respect for women in tech. Today, Heather is the founder and general partner of Flying Fish Ventures Fund in Seattle. Heather, welcome to Third Act. Thank you. What a lovely introduction. Ah, well, it's all all about you. So it's all true. So I think teenage daughters are the perfect mirror of their mother's insecurities. Um, Mine used to always say to me that she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And of course, this is right you know, during the middle of some huge work crisis, she would tell me that. So it sounds like your, yours was the same in some ways. Yep. So I want to, um, you have a really interesting backstory because you're a bit of a hippie. So tell us about that. Yes. Uh, so I was born in the 60s and in California. And I think for a lot of people who were born in the 60s, this probably happened to them too. But but maybe, maybe my story is not, you know, super typical. But my... Um, my parents, uh, and I ended up having three parents because I acquired uh, a stepdad along the way too, okay. uh, were all super active anti-war um, uh, protesters, uh, women's liberation advocates, uh, anti-racism uh, advocates. I mean, they were, I, I remember being, um, you know, at the home of, of some of the Black Panthers. Oh my goodness. Being with Jane Fonda, Allen Ginsberg, you know, all as a little kid. So I didn't wow. We, we lived for a while with Cesar Chavez. So they're just, you know, endless, weird uh, childhood stories. Of, of, uh, <laughs> we'll do another podcast on that. Yes. <laughs> Heather, yes. act one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very unorthodox upbringing in lots of communal situations. Wow. And then, so you end up at Reed College, which is sort of the academic nirvana for hippies. What do you intend to study there? Yeah, so I, I, my parents, when I was about 10, moved to uh, a rural part of Oregon, and, and so I had to do a lot of conforming uh, when, when I was in that environment after, uh, you know, having been raised in this sort of, you know, free, free child system. And so Reed was kind of a return back to my early roots. And when I went there, I didn't really have a specific uh, sort of course of study in mind. I just knew that I wanted to, to kind of find a way to be financially independent. And um, Reed's a pretty traditional curriculum. So, you you know, all of the, it's like physics, chemistry, English, you know, that sort of thing. It's not, uh, you, it's not very creative majors. And ultimately, I just decided I'm going to go to law school so I can really do whatever I want. But language is probably important. And um, so I studied English literature, which, of course, is, you know, lying around reading novels and writing <laughs> papers about them, which is a great way to go to college. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, so, I mean, clearly you're brilliant. So you get into all the top law schools. So how, why did you choose to go to Stanford? Well, it's funny because the um, uh, I actually visited the uh, you know Yale and Harvard and and Stanford uh, because obviously it came down to sort of those three as the, uh-huh. as the logical choices, and then I got a call from an alumni um, from Stanford who was doing their recruiting for them. You know, obviously just someone to talk to, but he said, "Hey, you know, um, you know, you can go to any law school you want and you'll do great, but." 
would you rather, you know, when you're studying, walk out into the quad and see people playing hacky sack in the sunshine or, you know, freeze your butt off in, uh, you know, in New Haven or, oh or my Cambridge. Gosh. And I'm like, yeah, hacky sack. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. So, I mean, how was it as a girl from the commune going to Stanford? It was a bit of a shock and, and partly, and this is something I always try to tell people who are from, you know, small rural towns as I was, you underestimate your capabilities uh, if you don't get sort of at an early age, the opportunity to sort of play in the big leagues. So one of the things that really surprised me was, you know, how intellectually capable and prepared I was relative to my peers who had come from, you know, all of these, you know, universities that I thought were so important and you know, the people there must be so brilliant. And so it was, it was a great experience in, in terms of, you know, kind of gaining some confidence in my own intellectual abilities by putting myself in sort of no longer a small pond, but a bigger pond. You know, it's interesting. So, I mean, how did you overcome that fear? Because I know you really well, you're very fearless. So I assume, I mean, it's all probably always been part of your DNA, but was there something that woke up inside you while you were at Stanford? Really, I would say that that's that's a little bit what we're going to talk about later when we get to my third act. I I feel like I actually have been quite fearful and cautious uh, a lot of my life, and it wouldn't show up that way to other people. But I always think you have to measure sort of the what are you doing versus what could you do. It's sort of like are you living up to your potential? And and I would say I've I've sandbagged myself, you know, not infrequently in life, uh, and and probably even in law school you know, just not thinking sort of big enough about what I could do and, and, and should do, but just being sort of satisfied of like, oh yeah, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing well. I, you know, I'm standing up in, in sort of the, the, the lineup of talent here uh, really, really well, uh, but, but not, you know, necessarily pushing myself to do everything I could do more being satisfied if I'm doing well in comparison to others. You know, one of my big drivers as a result of my childhood was was be, being financially secure and, uh, you know, standing on my own two feet. And I remember watching a 60 Minutes. Um, this was shortly after I graduated from law school. I remember watching 60 Minutes and it was this um, segment on divorced women in Beverly Hills who were living in their cars. And... And, and it was basically this idea of, you know, women not having financial independence and ending up, you know, on the short end of the stick, having relied on somebody else to earn their money and, and, and take care of them. So corporate law and a big law firm, you know, really appealed to me in terms of being able to create that career that I thought a woman could have, because I think, you know, we're all still, you know, in our age group, there were certain careers that were semi-open and other careers that maybe weren't. And so we were looking for where could we build our financial independence and, and have a true professional identity. And, uh, you know, large law firm, corporate law seemed like a possibility for that. Eventually you move in-house, uh, but you realize you want to change your identity away from being you could kind of quote unquote the lawyer. Why? Yeah. So uh, this is something that if you talk to lawyers, I think they universally feel, uh, and and I don't know, you know, I don't think it's changing uh, yet, and maybe it will in the future, but what happens in the business world as a lawyer is that you are viewed as in a very sort of circumscribed and not very favorable light, <clears throat> you know, sort of viewed as the 
the blocker that, you know, you, you hear people say it's illegal and everyone rolls their eyes, you know, it's it's going to take forever. Yeah. 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 And so you, you have, you're no value add. You're just like sort of this necessary evil. And so even people who have a ton of other capabilities, if people still identify them as lawyers, they tend to get kind of shoved into that box. And so I was very interested in seeing if I could move over to the business side and kind of shed my lawyer identity and then hopefully have, you know, other sort of opportunities opened up to me as a result. And did that work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I am where I am today is I made that important decision. Uh, And and it's sad because I think the law is tremendously valuable and, and I actually enjoy being a lawyer quite a bit. But, you know, even today, like for our firm, I'm not the one who handles the legal work because it's dangerous for me to get you know too far into that box because I'll get pulled back in and then I'll get that label again. Eventually, you end up at uh, as a principal at Summit Power Group doing energy projects. So, what you know, say more about that kind of that company and and what kind of a job did you have there? Yeah, that was a great opportunity because uh, the internet had imploded at that point. I'd had a couple of different great, you know, sort of startup rides in in internet land, um, one of them leading into an IPO and great, you know, great gig. But the energy sector, it's hard to roll back the tape and remember this, but before Enron exploded and imploded, um, people viewed energy as this really sexy area. And there was just a lot of money being made, a lot of interest in the area. And so that was the time that I joined Summit. And it was a very small team. And they were kind of thinking about wrapping up the business. And then um, I took the opportunity to say, I will join you and let's keep going. And that led to just really interesting project finance work. But it was kind of a family company because it was a couple of brothers and me and another guy. And so it was a you know closely held corporation, really, and very family-oriented. So they were super supportive when um, we made the next, you know, decision, which was, let's uh, get a new family member in our lives, um, which was, you know, adopting our daughter. So how did things change then for you when you adopted Jing? Even in anticipation, and this is something I think, uh, you know, it's been written about by Sheryl Sandberg and others, but when I decided I was going to get a kid, you know, either biologically or by adoption, I started scaling back my ambitions and I started feeling that I, I was, you know, I, I could tell like I was pushing my husband more like you go do, you know, like sort of like living vicariously through him, which is of course how women did it, you know, in the fifties and before, but I, I also felt like I was like limiting things right and left to try to like make room for this kid. And maybe that's smart and sensible and that's what we should all do. But for me, it felt very sort of wrong, but also very inevitable. So I, I kept constraining my role at Summit. You know, like several times I was asked to be the CEO and I was like, no, I can't do that. You know, I've got this kid. And, and I kept wanting to have really interesting work, but not take on leadership of more than I had to. So I lead things, but I would also always be turning things down. Yeah. Do you remember like how you you kind of touched on a little bit, but your identity changing? I mean, did did you feel different about yourself? Yeah, I I think I did, and I think I started. You know, my my husband talks about how uh, when I turned forty, I was I you know like instantly like switched my wardrobe to this really dowdy you know kind of wardrobe compared to my normal wardrobe. Oh my and, goodness! And I can't imagine said, you ever being dowdy. 
I know, right? And uh, and then he said I, that only lasted for like a month, and then I switched back. You know, <laughs> okay, yeah. 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 But um, but it was there, there's all these all this stuff freighted around motherhood, right? Uh, and even though I had stepkids already, you know, it just be it was really a different thing. And there's a lot of pressure too in academic and not academic, but in in elementary school settings to create a social life for your kid by being part of the full-time mom thing, you know? And, and so, you know, a lot of women have talked about this, but I, I definitely did a lot of time, you know, kind of pretending to be a stay-at-home mom at the same time that I would be working, you know, in my Lululemon in the car, uh, waiting to go in to do the group workout with the other moms, right? I did the same. I did the same. It's a thing, right? And it is good and bad, but you shouldn't right. have to feel badly about it. So that gets us to the opening story. So 13-year-old Jing, what does she say to you? Yeah, and this is this is a hard thing in, in many ways because I, I feel, you know, I, I, I don't like to uh, uh, throw shade on, on other women's choices, but my daughter, you know, in her very progressive all-girls school, I think was talking a lot about empowerment of women and women role in society. And she started really noticing the, the mothers of her friends and, uh, and noticing my friends also, uh, my female friends. And, you know, she knew I had a job and she, you know, she spent a lot of, she, she says, I spent all my life under your desk, mom, because you were yeah. always working, which of course I'm like, no, I was dogging it when you were little. You don't know what yeah. I was sacrificing for you know, but um, she started saying that she would ask, what does so-and-so do? And I would say, well, she used to, and I would talk about her career kind of 10 years ago, right? Um, and, and, and then Jing would say, well, what does she do now? Because I, when I go to their house, she's not doing anything and she's doesn't, you know, and she's bugs her kids and she doesn't seem happy. And, you know, oh, she was yeah. sort of like watching things and the mirror observe, very observational, right? Yeah, yeah, seeing things kind of with a fresh eye. And I realized, and, and some of her friends, you know, you were saying about your daughter saying she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, but some of her friends, she would actually say, my friend so-and-so says she's planning on, you know, quitting her job as soon as she graduates from college and has a kid and and uh, and she just wants to live like her mom does, which is, you know, pretty high on the hog, you know, without um, earning any money. And and I was just, this whole thing just freaked me out. And so I, I started kind of formulating a plan of, of, well, you know, what should I do next? What should, what should I really do to, to both, you know, do my part for society and give back because I've had so much privilege, but also really provide a good role model to my daughter and to other women or why, you know, at, at age, whatever I was then, I guess, uh, mid forties or something that you're not done just because just because you have the financial security to be done. Doesn't mean you're done. Yeah. The vocational freedom. Right. So voila, you wake up, you say to Rick, <laughs> I'm back. And so, and I don't know if you guys were reading this great book, which I've talked about many times already in this podcast. So it's called younger next year, which is one of my favorite books, except for the chapter on divorcing the first wife. Um, oh, which is in the I, men's I've version. That. I've repressed that. Is that I know. It's just oh. so upsetting that they put that in the men's version. But anyway, it plays a part. So how do you, so talk about that. So when you're thinking about coming back, how did you think about that? 
Yeah. So I, I really thought about, um, I mean, certainly thought about Younger Next Year in terms of all the nutrition and exercise advice it gives, but really that was not the part that really hit me. The part that hit me was the community part because I'm, I am an only child. I, you know, as you know, given my background, I live all over the place and, and have crazy, um, you know, uprootings now and again. And I'm also an introvert. So like being with other people doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. And this idea of really being connected and really participating in a community as however you want to construct that was very impactful. That was the part of the book, which I think is like the last third that I was like, oh, holy crap, this is really, you know, this is the, this I'm not doing and that I need to start doing. Yeah, it, it, it makes a very strong case for diet or exercise, exercise, exercise and community, but particularly for men, you know, who kind of lose it. But so right. you, so you doubled down your efforts to build up the Seattle community. You go back, you get your job at index uh, in, you know, so you've done, and I've met you through this. So I've met you through so much of the community and tell us about what you've done. I mean, cause I think it's exemplary. And as, as other listeners think about, well, I want to get more involved in the community I mean, what's your example? Yeah, I think, you know, to me, it's, it's first of all, it, 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 it's being open to a lot of people and being open to helping out. So, you know, even like this morning, I had a call with a, a great CFO of one of our major uh, local companies in Seattle, who, who's a woman, and I'd never met her before, but it is creating new connections that way and, and new connections with people who are going to be sort of similarly minded to you about their responsibility to the community. And, and so it's it's not only about you and what you can do, but also helping with other people to create ideas about what should be done and then getting behind those ideas. But for me, one of the ways to do that was really to get pretty involved in local politics, as well as you know, obviously our own kind of corner of the national political uh, spectrum. And we're lucky that we have a lot of really cool politicians in Washington state. Mm-hmm. And all of them are amazing women, by the way, um, like, like our two senators and our former governor and, you know, other, other folks that, that uh, can think of. And, and so I started being pretty active in political campaigns, um, just again, locally, you know, everyone likes to get involved in the big presidential stuff, but I think it's much more interesting to be involved locally. And then that led to being involved with a lot of business organizations who also were involved with politics because you have to be it's it's always you know nonprofit business and government that's going to move you know society forward in in tandem hopefully yeah uh, so to me really getting in there and trying to help and shape that was the key but but I also spent a lot of time like getting to know the big restaurateurs in the region getting to know the people that run the art museum getting to know people that run nightlife you know just trying to figure out like sort of who are the people that are really causing things to happen in our region? And then how do you provide benefit to them by them knowing you and vice versa and just being that connector? Part two, though, of the comeback. So part one is community. Part two is to get more women respected in tech. So And I know you're really passionate about that. So how do you, how are you going about doing that? And what do you see? Uh, The thing I have kind of tried to encapsulate this, this in when I try to encourage other people to think this way is what's your highest and best use 
And, and so when you, when you have vocational choice, which I, I love how you put that, it's, it's getting to think about, well, what would be very challenging for me? You know, so how can I sort of feel like I'm having that midlife crisis and having it be a, a constructive process? A lot of people want to run ultra marathons. So, mm-hmm. you know, what's my ultra marathon equivalent? And then what's something that only a few people who happen to have my characteristics could actually do? And, and so as I looked around and sort of looked at my two sort of drivers, uh, one of which was to help the region and the other of which was to, to really help the status of women broadly, I thought this venture capital tech thing is sort of the, the, the bullseye for what's going to be challenging for me and also beneficial to those two causes and is something that only a few people I think could pull off uh, and, and that I was situated to pull off. And, and that's really because I believe that the, the power and money are so tightly linked. And I believe that tech is the, is the key to money in this next sort of era that we're in. And so when you sort of think about that, you think about, well, where's the real power position in money related to tech and it's clearly venture capital. Uh, And no surprise, uh, that is a place where women are really, really poorly represented, as well as BIPOC uh, folks as well. It's, you know, it's a very white male world and and white male Ivy League world, too, for that matter. I mean, it's it's a very small sliver of society. So I thought, well, you know, being a founder of a venture firm, I mean, there just, there are, when I started this, now there are more, uh, but they're still all in that sort of like, can I make this work stage? But when I started, there were probably uh, maybe um, a few dozen women who had actually started venture funds um, out of, you know, thousands and thousands of funds. And, uh, and it's a, to be an owner of a venture fund and to be the, you know, the founder and to be the, in my case, the face of the firm, it's, it's very unusual. So it's, you know, it is my ultra marathon for sure. Uh, and it's every bit as hard as an ultra marathon, I think, but you know, when I get need to get motivated to go spend another day not in the sun, but you know, on Zoom calls all day, it's really because I do believe this makes a, a big difference. Are, are you enjoying it? Oh yeah, I mean, it's a great job, right? Yeah. And, it's, it's, and, and I actually like the parts that a lot of people don't like. I kind of like the money raising part because it's <laughs> all about telling people a story, you know, uh-huh. and, and and it's also very binary. You know, either they want to give you money or they don't. That's right. So it, yeah. Very easy to tell if you're being successful. Uh, it's like being a waitress. Like you either get a tip or you don't, right? I used to love being yeah, a waitress yeah. for that reason, I, right? I liked being a waitress too, actually. I thought oh, that was a lot of fun. I did too. Um, yeah. Uh, but it, uh, but it's, so it's, it, but the, the part of working with uh, founders and CEOs and getting to hear new ideas and, and getting to, because we invest so early stage, I also get to influence those ideas. You know, it's not, just about sort of writing the check. It's, it's also about saying, well, have you thought about this? And what if you went, you know, after this market instead of that market? Or what if you put more emphasis on this part of the tech versus that? So it's, it's a super creative, but also good kind of multitasker job to have because you're, you know, you, you have a million tasks and your job is never done. So you need to be able to move very fluidly from one thing to the next. And you need to be happy with, well, I sort of finished that, but I'm not really done, but I can't be. So now you're in the position of power in the sense of you own the money as the funder. How is that being a woman in terms of raising the fund as well as talking with entrepreneurs? 
Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's I, I I think it's pretty good. I mean, I think that the biggest impact that that I have is is actually on male teams uh, that come in and pitch us. I mean, everyone always expects to be a woman in this position that you're going to have this great impact on women led teams. Um, but first, there are still very few of them, and and they you know are very happy to see you there, and you're very happy to see them there. But I think the bigger impact is on is on all male teams who have never had to ask a woman for something who's been in this much power uh, over them. And and so that to watch their minds kind of remodel and their pattern recognition kind of shift as to who could be in that position, you know, and who is going to be the decider of my fate in terms of getting money, that's really, really valuable. And it, you know, it does make you feel like you're, you're, you know, you're making a difference daily. And, and hopefully, you know, a lot of these teams are very young. And so hopefully they've had experience with women in power. But in tech, there's still not a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, we need to, you know, we need to really work on that, that sort of area of representation. Ditto with, with BIPOC folks as well, you know, having to ask a, a black man or a black woman for money um, for, you know, your, your Ivy League white founder would be a different experience and, and one that would be very beneficial. Yeah. I, and so we probably have listeners who are thinking about doing the same thing and, any advice, I mean, is in terms of being a venture capitalist, starting your own fund, any advice there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, unfortunately, it's something that is hard to do unless you already have a lot of financial security because it is a very long time until you can possibly think that you are in the same place that you would be if you just took a job. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you basically don't get paid for a while, correct? Yeah, you don't get paid yeah. for a long time. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, even from a subsistence standpoint, you're, you know, you're waiting a long time until you really get to catch up. It's, you know, sort of a 10 year journey before you get to catch up with, with all the money that you could have earned sort of running a company or being in the C-suite or whatever. And then you have to, I think, enjoy raising money. So you have to really believe in your story and you have to be in sales enough to know that you're going to hear a lot of no and, and that that's okay, that that's just part of the gig. Because uh, a lot of people are like, yeah, I would love to work with young companies and help them and, and mentor them. And But yes, that is a very big part of the job and it is the fun part of the job. But the, the raising of the capital is, um, um, and especially for a, a new fund, is probably even more important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be fearless in that sense. Yep. This podcast is sponsored through the Athena Alliance, which is get uh, senior women down to boards. Uh, you're, you and I are both uh, pioneer members of, of the Athena Alliance because we're on boards. And Athena does a great job of preparing women for board service as well as for more senior jobs. But you always say to me, and I always tell other people, women should become CEOs first. You know this. So what's the takeaway for listeners? Yeah, yeah. I, I always ask people to, to do a couple of thought experiments. So first of all, I always ask um, women to do a thought experiment that somebody told me to do, and it like shook me to my core. And that thought experiment was, imagine that you are your twin brother. And so imagine you have every characteristic that you have now, but expressed in a male form. Uh, where would you be now in your career? Uh, oh, that's a horrifying thought. I know, right? Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Wow. Very horrifying I thought, thought about that. Right. Um, and from that thought, 
you will quickly conclude, oh, yeah, I wouldn't be going onto boards at this point. I would be running some gigantic company. Um, And and so that's what I ask women to to think about doing is, is, again, I had this epiphany in a um, women on boards group where there were probably, you know, 30 women in the room and they were, some of them were already on board. Some of them were getting on boards, but all of them had stopped their ascent. They were no longer thinking about CEO. They were CFOs, they were CMOs, they were whatever they were. And they were basically going to keep doing that job and maybe even do it again for another company, but they weren't going to, they weren't really trying to be CEO. And, but they were starting to think about being on boards. And when they got on enough boards, they were probably going to stop their day job. And I stood up in this group and I said, I think you guys need to look around. If you were all men, you would not be in this room right now. You would still be saying, yeah, I'm interested in words, but later, because I haven't been a CEO yet. Wow. Wow. You're very right. You're you're (laughs) absolutely right. And that's a great way to think about it as your your twin, your male twin. Oh my gosh. It's it's, uh, phenomenal. And I mean, you have sons, so you can probably see self, you know, reincarnated in that form right now. I sure can. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, you're so fearless. Yeah, exactly. So that's a great lesson. Um, I always close my podcast by asking guests what they're not done with yet. We might require a podcast or two more for you, but now I just, for you, because I would, Jenny Durkin's seat, our Seattle mayor is is vacant. So I don't know, is that your next act or what else do you have in mind? (laughs) <laughs> it's so funny. People always ask me if I'll run for something or something else. And I, of course, I, I, um, you know, I think everybody would be happy to be appointed to run something, but I don't think even I would be happy to be appointed Seattle mayor right now. It's oh, kind of like, so nobody difficult. wants that job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely not politics. Uh, I, you know, I, I do regret not being a CEO, but I think now wearing my venture hat, I am in that position and that is not a position I, I plan to, to relinquish for any other position, but that position will uh, hopefully help me encourage and and facilitate a lot of other women and BIPOC um, people becoming CEOs because I think that's you know that's the job that all of us should be working on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you are such an inspiration always to me for getting going and doing good. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Third Act. Where can we find you online? And we'll put it all in the show notes. Yeah, so I'm at Heather Redman uh, for Twitter. Okay. And I'm also pretty uh, active on LinkedIn and just Heather Redman on LinkedIn. Great, we'll put that in. Well, thanks so much, Heather. Thank you. This was wonderful to talk to you, Liz, and thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.